Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epstein from H.R. Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. So, Charles, our guest today, I think you probably know him a lot better than I do. I know him all too well <laughs> because uh, Bill Bergstrom uh, is, uh, he's been with H.R. Harmer for a number of years. Bill was uh, basically the person I was assigned to work under. Uh, when I was hired at H.R. Harmer four and a half years ago. Um, uh, Bill was the senior philatelist at H.R. Harmer at that point. And uh, one of my initial uh, jobs with the company was was to learn how to describe and learn about stamps. And um, I was basically uh, under Bill's command. Um, so Bill would come into my office with a rolling rack, one of the big rolling racks that fits like 16 bankers boxes. Mm-hmm. And he would just park into my office. And he'd be like, when you're done with this, come see me and I'll have more for you. <laughs> um, Bill, Bill, um, in, in all seriousness, I've worked very closely with Bill now for four and a half years. There's very few days in that period where we haven't spoken, uh, either when we were in the office together in California or now that he's in Florida, I'm in New York. Uh, we speak on the phone daily. Um, everything I've, I don't want to say everything cause I try and read on my own and I try and mm-hmm. teach myself and better myself. But even that, I wouldn't have that drive without Bill. Effectively, everything I know, which is still very little compared to most people, um, but it comes from Bill. It is from watching Bill. It is from asking Bill questions, much to his chagrin. Um, too many questions. And I I really wouldn't be half the philatelist I am now uh, if it weren't for working under Bill so closely. Mm-hmm. And I am really indebted to him for everything he's taught me. Uh, in this business, not just about stamps, but about how auctions are run or how to deal with customers or how to handle certain situations. Um, Bill, and he'll tell us all this, I'm sure, but he's been in the auction business for, this is his 40th year. Uh, He has worked for a number of great auctioneers and auction companies. Uh, Bill is really as accomplished and long-lived a describer in this hobby a lot of people come and go um bill's been doing this non-stop for 40 years and it's incredible um i'm privileged to have worked under him and i was really excited bill is not the most public person i've had to it's like pulling teeth to get him to go to a stamp <laughs> show with me even when we were in california i'd say hey let's go to orco expo or sescal it's like literally a half hour away and even that process was difficult because Bill is happiest in the office with stamps. Hmm. Um, so the fact that Bill agreed to do this, I, I'm really excited to talk to him. And I really, this is a special one for me because, again, Bill is, um, you know, a huge part of the reason why I'm still doing this four and a half years later. Well, I feel like a lot of people don't get the the whole mentor thing. So I mean, that's 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 pretty huge that that opportunity I, was there for you. If I hadn't had him to study under, I probably would have gotten bored or frustrated within weeks, days, yeah. hours. Well, I mean, that must uh, happen to a lot of people who want to get into collecting, and then they they don't have a they don't have someone to help them uh, get the knowledge base that they that they want to get or direct them into and, the correct path. Or. 
And as great as it is to read auction catalogs or read books or journals, like I'm doing all the time, there is nothing that beats, you know, grabbing something, you know, you have a, a cover or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I just go into Bill and I'm like, Bill, and, and, and it's a running joke between Bill and I, I do ask too many questions, but you can't beat that sort of yeah. um, expertise to say, Bill, what's this? Have you seen one of these before? What do mm-hmm. I do with it? Is it regummed? Is it reperfed? Is it whatever? When you have somebody you can lean on like that, right. um, well, because it's a conversation. Help, so. It's it's not just you reading. It's a conversation something. with philatelists. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Um, but but having that back and forth again, the fact that it's not just a one way street. I'm not just trying to yeah. um, osmose knowledge from these books. The fact that I can, um, you know, uh, he can rebut me or I can rebut him, and we can we can figure it out. That's that's something that's been really really special and really helpful. Yeah. um for me so I, i'm really excited to welcome bill from his home in florida um this is this is going to be a fun one i think yeah all right let's bring him in there's bill hello hi bill thank you for joining us um it, it's weird seeing you on zoom because i'm so used to seeing you either in the office or i just saw you uh in missouri to work on our latest catalog production uh, but thank you for joining us remotely from your home in florida that's uh, no problem thanks for uh, thanks for the invitation so for people who maybe don't know the name Bill Bergstrom, I was just saying in our, uh, as we were speaking to Bill a minute ago, um, I would guess that 99.9% of people listening to this right now have read at least one of Bill's auction lot descriptions, um, if not hundreds or thousands of Bill's auction lot descriptions. Um, Bill, you've been in the business for about 40 years now, is that correct? Yeah, since uh, May of 1980. Take us back. When you were growing up, how did you uh, first discover stamps? How did you get involved in the hobby? And, and what you know, what sort of caused you to make the transition from maybe just collecting stamps as a kid to uh, making this something that you wanted to do full-time? Because I know that you had very different career plans, before, as I did, before <laughs> uh, stamps got in the way and, and ruined everything. Well, like uh, most collectors, you know, my my mother started me off when I was probably eight or nine years old. She was just a general worldwide collector. And so obviously I sort of followed the same path. Uh, we bought approvals from H.E. Harris and, and a couple other places, you know, uh, you know, 100 stamps for a nickel. Or we'd go down to the local five and dime and buy the, you know, the 100 topical packet for 89 cents kind of thing uh you know and then i we just i just kept doing that till i got to high school and then like most people i just put it aside you know there was a lot more important things to do you know a lot more interesting uh <clears throat> obviously i never i didn't keep it going through college uh, again more interesting things to do and and, and the like uh, and then when i went to graduate school at illinois I found I had a little more free time on my hands, so I I picked up the collection again and uh, started filling in some, you know, my U.S. collection. And, and in hindsight, I did it very badly because I bought everything at at high retail and you know instead of uh, you know half face like you could get it now. While at graduate school, you know, I was in the chemistry uh, end of things. I decided early on 
that I really wasn't liking coming home smelling like chemicals or burning my hands with acid or, you know, just, uh, you know, my lab coat was all full of holes. You know, it, it just w- was not healthy. Anyway, in Stamps Magazine, which was publishing at the time, uh, there was an ad in the uh, Help Wanted section uh, for an auction describer. And I thought that uh, a little bit interesting. I had no idea who it was. I had never participated in auctions before. Uh, I had just recently recently become a member of the APS, and I had ordered my first auction catalog from from H.R. Harmer's, uh, coincidentally, uh, something called the Capital Collection. It probably would have been 1979, 80 or so. And <clears throat> so I answered the ad, and Jack Schiff of Richfield Park, New Jersey, uh, got in touch with me. This was in, in February of 1980. Uh, <clears throat> asked, and we just kind of did a general interview over the, over the phone, you know, what I collect, all that kind of thing. And in the end, he, he was convinced, you know, that I was a total novice, didn't really know anything other than, you know, this stamps from the United States, this one's from Great Britain and, and so on. But he was about to do a show in Chicago uh, at Compex. Uh, in probably in March or April. So I went up to meet him and we talked some more. And it it turned out that I was ideally suited for what he needed, somebody cheap, you know, because I didn't know anything and that's, you know, that's what he could afford at the time. Uh, So it all worked out. Yeah, I, I finished up my graduate school in May of 1980. I uh, went home for a week, told my parents what was going on. They weren't entirely happy, but uh, understood. Uh, and then the following week, I was in my car driving out to New Jersey. And then that began uh, my auction lot describing a career. Did you anticipate when you made that drive that you would uh, still be describing auction lots? Was it something you thought would last long term or was this a, a stopgap after your uh, graduate school. What was going through your mind at that point? Uh, I had absolutely no intention or no idea that it it would become full time. I thought it, it, and my parents thought the same thing that I would just go and try it. And, you know, it it really wouldn't suit me or I'd find it too dull or, you know, it just completely boring. And I'd give it up in six months and, and go back to school. Uh, Ironically, that's what you thought of me when I joined uh, HR Harmer as well, to show you how things I, come full circle. No, I, well, I didn't give you six months. Um, <laughs> but uh, after I got there and just started doing the work, uh, it, it was something that appealed to me. It, it's a lot of, well, I, I call it a lot of anal work. You know, it's repetitive counting, uh, sorting, uh, classifying, counting, you know, all that, you know, the stuff that, uh, some of my chemistry background actually helped me with, uh, but uh, in the end, I, I just kept at it. And six months grew to a year, and, and then so on and so forth. And uh, my parents appreciated that I never had to move back home. Uh, <laughs> I just so I just stayed in and worked for him up, up until uh, 1992. Uh, you know, just started out doing the really basic stuff. 
counting face, counting plate blocks for wholesale lots and so on. Uh, he was a pretty good teacher. Uh, he was a he, he was an expert in uh, uh, early 20th century U.S. You know the Washington Franklin period, uh, coils, things like that, and of course uh, freaks and errors. And <clears throat> I learned from him over the years, uh, and then finally left uh, in 1992. I never met Mr. Schiff, but I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, knew him or knew of him. Uh, but I feel like I knew him uh, because of the stories you have uh, told me over the years. Um, how would you characterize working for Jack Schiff? And are there any particular highlights or anecdotes that you uh, care to share about your time in his office? Uh, Jack Schiff was, well, like a lot of people in the stamp business, uh, a lot of businesses are their sole proprietorships. And in the course of of course, in the, the in the stamp world, we're kind of a little off, anyways. He he started when he was a kid uh, up near Columbia University in New York, and spent some time in the army as a, an MP uh, in Austria after the war, and that that kind of attitude kind of carried with him over into uh, the. Uh, the stamp business and so on. Uh, he was somewhat authoritarian, uh, strict, uh, <clears throat> always very fair. I mean, he treated everybody pretty much the same way. Uh, some people could deal with it and some people couldn't. Uh, I know one guy, uh, one dealer who, who dealt a lot with him, uh, and they would have a meeting <clears throat> In, in the other dealer's car, as, as a matter of fact. And once the other guy just had enough, he, he, he would light up his cigar, and then that would signal the end of the meeting because Jack wouldn't be able to stand the cigar smoke, and, and he just, uh, he, that was the end of it, and, and the meeting was over. Probably the most memorable thing that happened while I was there was the discovery of the CIA invert. We found out later, obviously, that it was CIA employees uh, went down to the post office to buy some some dollar stamps, and they thought something looked off. So they went to a, a Northern Virginia stamp dealer uh, who referred them to Jack. <clears throat> and then they brought the sheet up, and, and Jack looked at it, immediately knew what it was. Uh, and after checking out with the, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing that it, it hadn't been stolen or you know gone out through a back door, uh, which a lot of things had, you know, he, he determined that it, that it was legitimate and he ended up, uh, ended up buying it. Not a whole lot of it was made initially. Uh, we sold a, a single in the auction at Ameripex in 1986. And I, yeah, I think it brought you know, like $5,500. And then, uh, I think, uh, Donald Sunman up at Mystic, had put together a consortium or a, a group of people who wanted to buy uh, a big block of, uh, I think it was 94 stamps in the original sheet. Hmm. And they ended up buying half of, of a half sheet. But they went through the actual process of filing the Freedom of Information Act to find out, uh, you know, where the CIA employees, you know, bought the sheet. Was there any funding business going on and so on? Uh, and after the postal inspectors did everything that they, they do, they, 
everything was legitimate. You know, the CIA employees got the ultimatum either, you know, give back your copy or your money or you're going to get fired. And I think some of them actually got fired and some of them stayed. But anyway, that <clears throat> when it came out that it was, it was CIA employees that were involved, then the, the media started to get involved. And I remember one day in the office, we started getting calls from the news services, uh, CBS, you know, the local TV stations in in New York City, uh, some people down in Washington. And I remember doing uh, phone interviews, uh, lining up people for to see Jack in his office about doing an interview about the CIA stamp. So that was probably the most uh, memorable thing that happened while I was there. Uh, other than the fact, you know, he used to go to shows all the time. So I got to travel all the country. I got to go to Europe a few times. Uh, so that was, that was always a, a, a big advantage, but all in all, it was, I learned a great deal about the auction business from him in 12 years, uh, a lot about what to do and what not to do. And, uh, that's kind of carried over up to where I am now. Not a lot of people get to, to learn that way from, uh, auctioneers or from dealers putting in because it, it feels like there's such a close circle that people are just rehiring within the community. They're not really bringing in new people or b- beginning collectors like that. Did you find yourself as you were learning, uh, attributing lots and everything like that, being more pulled in one direction and enjoying U.S. covers or, or anything like that more? Uh, as opposed to somebody like a, a Siegel or at the time a, a Christie's, uh, Jack was more a, a general auction house. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, back when I first started, there were 30, 40, 50 auction houses with dozens of them in, in New York City area alone. I mean, you couldn't go a week without having a Harmer auction or a Siegel auction or a, you know, a Simmy's auction up in Boston or a Kaufman auction. Now, you know, it was much, much different than it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were much more a, a general house. So I, I got my fingers wet in a, in, a, in a lot of different areas. Now, Jack was obviously well-versed in U.S., so obviously he he did most of the U.S. describing or, or a good part of it. So that kind of pushed me over into the, the British and the foreign area where even today that's kind of where I feel more comfortable. But and, in- and, and, and I, I just want to mention what your motto is. Your uh, mantra in life is still that you don't do U.S., no, I don't do U.S. <laughs> and then, I, and then I give Bill a gigantic pile of U.S. and two or three days later, it's done. And I say, Bill, I thought you didn't do U.S. So, so even though you, I, I, I would say, tend towards uh, British and foreign, uh, your U.S. expertise is still um, uh, relatively unmatched. Uh, well, I always, you know, I preface the I don't do U.S. So, you know, when it all goes haywire, I, I don't get, I don't get blamed. But, uh, yeah, in the whole scheme of things, I've had to become sort of a a generalist and know a whole lot of, you know, a lot of things about a lot of different areas. And I can't really claim to be a quote-unquote expert in any one particular area, although 
you know, I, I can kind of, I, I can, I'm well versed in, 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 in many of them, but I, I, can, I could never, for example, I could never be a judge at an exhibition or, or write a book, you know, you know, stuff like that. I, I don't have that kind of breadth of knowledge, but in an overall sense, yeah, I, I, there's really nothing that I either haven't seen or I, I couldn't, uh, you know, get a hold of. From Schiff, you, you, you've sort of rubbed shoulders with a lot of different auction houses and a lot of different uh, companies over the years. Where did you go from Schiff? What, uh, what was your next move after that? Uh, in 1992, uh, there were two guys who were working at William A. Fox, uh, and also a northern New Jersey auction house, uh, who were itching to get on their own. Uh, so the three of us pooled our meager resources and went into business and took uh, Lowell Newman's name, uh, the Lowell S. Newman auctioneers. Uh, we were from in Weehawken, New Jersey from 92 to, I left in 97, but they kept on going another year. It was a, a terrific experience, you know, being in an ownership position as opposed to, you know, just a, an employee. And for the first four or five years, things things were, were really good. Uh, it got to the point where we were really, you know, sort of underfinanced and, and got into a little trouble that way. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall. And there was another opportunity that came up that somebody somebody told me about. Uh, down with Matthew Bennett, down in the Baltimore area. So in 97, uh, <clears throat> I left New Jersey and moved, uh, actually moved down to Maryland and went to work for uh, Harvey Bennett. Uh, in, in his father, He had taken over his father's firm uh, early in, in the early 90s. And I got there in, in 97 and worked there until 2002. Now, the thing about working at Bennett's that was so different, and, and I told Harvey this one time, uh, we were doing an auction over at the Ballpex Stamp Show, and they usually start, like to start their auctions out with, with collections, uh, in this case, uh, U.S. collections. So the first page of the catalog had, half, you know, there's the heading up the top, so there's only like room for six lots at the bottom half of the page. And after the, this first session had sold, I, I went up to Harvey and said, you know, your first six lots sold for more than Jack Schiff did in an entire year. So th that was kind of a, a wake-up call to call the big-time auctions, you know, ones where they were actually getting, you know, big, serious collections. I asked Harvey one time what it would take for him to go leave the office to go see a collector to go actually pick up his collection. And he said, 500 certificates. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's kind of a different, <laughs> different mindset yeah. than, you know, when I was where I had been previously where, you know, we would travel pretty much anywhere to get a five or $10,000 collection. And I pretty much do the same thing today, you know, with, within reason. But the experience of Bennett's was, was kind of like going from, the minor leagues to the professionals. Uh, and that's also where I got my uh, chance to, 
not only to write the lots, but I actually did the catalog layout and production and got it, you know, I, I laid out the pages, put in the photos, you know, and, and got it ready for the printer. And that was also something quite different. Uh, back in back when I first started, what you, everybody used used to write your lots by hand on a on your lot card. Then you would uh, put them in order, send them off to a, a printer. In our ca- case, and almost everybody in New York used Cosmos Press. They would do the typesetting, send all the pages back. You'd correct and and get it all done that way before an actual catalog was printed. Now you could do everything in house. You could you could set your type. You could you could lay out the pages. You could put in the photos. You could do, you could do everything. Put it on a disc and hand it to the printer, and then you know a week or so later you get you get your catalog back. Um, it also you know it made it much less expensive to do color. It made it much less expensive to put photos inside of the text as opposed to, I don't know, you've, you've probably seen old-time catalogs. There's a whole front section full of text and then a whole back section full of photos and you have to uh, go back and forth. You know, this made it much more convenient, much more user-friendly. And <clears throat> that was another place where uh, I, I learned quite a bit. Uh, then I was there for until 2002, at which point Another describer who was at uh, Bennett with me, a guy named George Eveleth, who had worked for Greg Manning before, had gotten an offer and, and offered he wanted me to, to come with him. So I, I did that. And I, since 2002, I've been with the on and off Greg Manning organization and all of its component parts, of which H.R. Harmer is really the only one left as a, a going concern. To explain that part of the hobby's history, we need a board with pins and strings <laughs> to to trace just what happened. But but effectively, when you when you went to Greg Manning, that was your introduction to the Harmers organization, and here you are, uh, eighteen years uh, after that. Um, well, well, Greg didn't uh, Greg didn't buy Har- Greg didn't buy Harmers from the family until probably three or four years after I got there. But uh, yes, that's. That's when uh, I, I started doing Harmer work. Uh, somebody else had was 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 the president, and they kept the office in in New York City for a while before moving it over to New Jersey, and then to Connecticut, and out to California, and then back to New York. And your time with Harmers has been uninterrupted since then. Is what's really uh, is that correct? No. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> You're the when, last one standing is really what matters. Uh, pretty much, yes. When the Manning organization had their kind of troubles with the Finza and the Escala group and all that, and the, you know the things that went on in Spain, uh, there was a, a lot of corporate shakeup and so on, and, and they ended up moving, closing the New Jersey office and moving to Connecticut. Now, even when they were in New Jersey, I was still living in Maryland and we could mute back and forth. Uh, there was no such really such thing as internet access to the auction system and and so on. So I would come up for a week, stay home for a week, uh, and bring things back and forth. When they moved to Connecticut, they fired a lot of staff, and I, I was one of them. Uh, so I was still in, in, in Connecticut, unemployed for a while, but then they started calling me back to freelance, you know, to, you know, write lots for them. And I, this, now I would drive up to Connecticut and back and back and forth. And 
eventually uh, they wanted me to move up to Connecticut full time. So I did that and moved to Connecticut. And we were there for a year before they decided to close down. At, the, at this point, the, the majority owner of that of the of the Manning organization was a group called Spectrum, the Spectrum Group, uh, which was mostly a coin. Uh, auctioneer wholesaler based out of California. They were the majority owner at, at this point. And they didn't really like having no oversight over the, the stamp business. So they decided to close it down and move out to California. So we moved out to California for a year. And then they didn't like that the, the coin auctions were operating at a, differently than the stamp auctions. And they didn't understand really how stamp auctions could work. Uh, the biggest Probably the difference is, is you watch the coin guys, and they're all walking around these little trays full of red boxes full of slabbed coins. And, and if you ever seen the slab coins, they have a, a barcode of some kind on them, and they can really keep very detailed track of inventory. You go bring in a, a 50 carton stamp consignment, <laughs> which may have millions of stamps in it. How do you, they couldn't understand? Well, how do you, how do you inventory that? How, uh, they just really didn't understand how the stamp business worked. So, in a sense, they they shut it down almost to its bare bones, and and all the philatelists got fired again. Uh, so I moved back to Maryland, but then they kept calling me back. So I would fly back and forth between California and Maryland to come out and do some work, and then they wanted me to come out to California to work full-time again. So I did that. And then they decided to close the California office uh, because the people who own the company now felt that Harmers of New York needed to still be a going concern. It had a certain cachet to it, which it does. And they were on the verge of getting an incredibly powerful collection from, uh, from the Haub family. And selling it in New York was certainly a whole lot more appealing than selling it in backwater California. So they closed up the office in California, moved it to New York City where Charles is sitting right now. And I got retired again to Florida, where I still travel back and forth (laughs) to the office to come back and write lots whenever New York City isn't closed. As you heard Charles mention previously, uh, we just closed out a couple of weeks in St. Joseph, Missouri uh, to do this last catalog. So lots of frequent flyer miles, uh, lots of back and forth across the country. Uh, It's certainly been an interesting ride. So I'm going to ask a question. Michael, you, you go first. I was just going to ask, I don't think we've, we've talked about this before. And for those who don't know, when, when you're describing a, a lot, say a, a carton, 50 carton lot comes in like you talked about before and three cartons of it is this d- terrific Rhodesia collection and and you're in charge of, of describing it. Are you also breaking down or breaking out individual stamps? How how does that process work when you're, are you just handed raw cartons and, and you are in charge of creating each lot or are you in charge of just writing the descriptions if you can talk i don't even know if we can talk about that 
Yeah, I can talk about that. <laughs> okay. um, early in my career, I was handed stuff to write. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I certainly was, was new enough that I didn't know what's a lot, what isn't a lot. Nowadays, sometimes I still I just I get handed a lot, and 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 here okay, and here's what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be the Rhodesia collection, and then what I would do is, is is go through it and determine what's a lot, what isn't. And now a lot of that is going to depend on the condition of the stamps inside of it. There are, are lots of Rhodesia stamps that are individual lots on their own, right. say the one-pound doublehead. But if if it's faulty or if it's got problems, it's best left in the collection. Uh, why would you sell individually a stamp at 10% of catalog when it stays in the collection that sells for 20. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of a, a, a judgment call to make. There's also been many cases where I walk into the room with the 50 cartons and, okay, have at it, just do whatever you need to do. And that's a part of this profession that, that I enjoy very much, just going through boxes uh, sorting them into, you know, U.S. pile, British pile, foreign pile, cover pile, junk pile, and so on. And then when you're done with that, you go through each pile and you just make uh, the lots that, that are appropriate. One of my old old bosses told me, and this is going to sound strange to, to people who aren't in this business, is he said that each collection will talk to you and tell you how it wants to be broken down and described. Because every single collection is different. Uh, even if somebody has a, a complete U.S. collection, say, 1900 to, to date, and thousands of people have one of those, each one of them is going to be different. Even if all of them just tried to collect Mint Never Hinge or all just used, each one is, is going to be different. I mean, if they're Never Hinged, did, did they happen to buy regum stamps? Are there some reperf in there as well? Do they buy some fake coils? Uh, are they all well-centered? Do, they, do some of them have certificate? You know, each one of them is going to be different, so you, you have to treat each one individually. Uh, there's no just blanket, uh, you know, this is what it is. And although that, that has started to come true for, like, post-1935 U.S., for example, you really don't. Mm. through it all that much you, you know you see if, if 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 he's got a legend sheet or he's got an imperf bugs pain or if he you know things like that that's almost bread and butter wrote kind of stuff but really every every single collection is is different and if if i got a collection today and i got the same collection two weeks from now there's a chance i might not treat them you know the, the lotting might not end up exactly the same right i'm gonna ask you a question that you have to answer <laughs> Although it's a remarkably difficult question. How many lots do you think you've written in your career? <laughs> I'm putting the over under at a hundred thousand. <laughs> oh, I would think it's more than that. What, what would your, well, your in, all right, quarter it, of a million? In the 12 years I was at shifts, we did eight auctions per year of about 2000 lots per sale. And I would imagine, well, in the beginning, I probably wrote a smaller percent, but towards the end, I probably wrote most of it. At Newman's, I probably, we did, while I was there, we had 35 auctions, probably 15 to 200. Yeah, it's over a quarter million. 
Yeah, it, 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 I, I really hadn't thought to, to add it all up. Please. But I, I've, I've probably written lots for well over 500 auctions. So, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to guess, yeah, it's probably up there. Do you feel like you've seen everything by now? Or are there still collections and consignments that you come across that excite you or that teach you something that you actually want to learn that you don't feel, you know, forced to learn. Are there still things that you, you find that, um, you know, remind you why you drove from Illinois to New Jersey in the first place? <laughs> well, at, at this point, uh, yes, I, I've seen, uh, you know, quite a bit, you know, obviously not as many as Siegel has, but you know, half a dozen airmail inverts, you know, the whole sheet of the, the CIA or what was right. left of it, the CIA invert, uh, there's, yes, there's lots of things I've seen, and sometimes, yeah, I get a little jaded. You know, Charles has heard me say that. But, for example, in the last few years, each time an Aero Van Halb collection or consignment has come in, I find that tremendously interesting. Um, I Last year, we did a, a Spanish-American War collection, which I found uh, very interesting. So they're getting fewer and farther between, but there are still things that that sometimes surprise me. And but it's always it's always interesting. I'm I'm very rarely bored, you know, unless like a, a UN collection comes in. <laughs> I think uh, now the, That's the, the fourth or fifth. I was going to say a majority of our guests have made a disparaging remark towards uh, UN collections now. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a safe one. I, I could mention lots of other countries where I have absolutely no interest, or uh, you know, I, I I tend to push it aside and want to do it at the very very tail end. But or you, know, you leave it on my desk. No, I haven't done that for a very long time. Uh. But yeah, UN is the safe choice to say that I really don't really no interest. Mm-hmm. But I also got to remember that back when I first started, UN was a very big deal. I mean, we we're getting three hundred bucks a shot for a, a number thirty-eight sheet. Wow. Uh, it, it was a completely different market then. You know, set of Zeps going for a normal hinge set seven eight thousand, uh, two hundred bucks for a a fifty cent Zep. You know. Five or six hundred dollars for a five dollar Coolidge block. It was a completely different market then than it is now. Wow. That's a good segue into my last question for you. Obviously, technology has changed catalog production and the way auctions are held. Obviously, the markets have changed. Things that I'm sure I could have picked up for pennies on the dollar forty years ago are now selling like crazy, and things that would have cost me thousands of dollars back then are now postage nearly. Other than the obvious ones, again, technology or the changing market, what would you say the biggest change has been working for an auction house in 1980 versus working for an auction house uh, today? Or is it the same? Do you have the same mindset when you sit down in front of a... An auction, is it really doesn't change over the years. It's really just a matter of taking material, presenting it to, to bidders, and then paying the owners. It, it, it's really, there's really no difference, you know, between the Ferrari sale 
or you know the Caspery sale. You know, it, it's really just the same thing. All it is really is is the technology difference. Uh, also, back in back when I started, uh, you would have an auction floor of fifty or a hundred people. You know, and, and the, the, some of them would be agents, but uh, you just have a floor full of people. And now, uh, with the internet and so on, really you you could have a floor of nobody. Which are you referring to? Which unfortunately, this year. which unfortunately has had to happen, especially in the New York City area. Uh, but the technology has made it such that you really don't need a physical floor anymore. Uh, it's it, it's very different than, and and it's a lot less fun. I'm sure Charles is an auctioneer now. You'd much rather face an audience of 30 or 40 people with half of them raising their hand as opposed to watching... Uh, three screens. Three screens, you know, online bidders or, you know, the, maybe the one agent on the floor and, and a telephone bidder. Uh, it, 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 was just a lot, it was just a lot more fun back then. Plus, there were a lot of interesting characters back then. You know, among the the auction agents, the dealers, uh, the young dealers. You know, back when I started, you know, there were ten or twenty guys. You know, that were my age. Some of them are still around now. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Bill Langs was one of them. He just passed away recently. But it was it was that generation that came up with me that that is is, is not going to be. Frankly, I don't think it's going to be replaced. Um, well, you've got, you've got two in front of you right now. <laughs> uh, well, okay, it's not going to be replaced to the same extent that uh, there was back uh, back in the day. Like I said, there were just in New York City, there were probably ten or twenty auction houses, all just employing their own describers uh, and so on. And that that's just not happening today. There's a either a lot more freelance or. You know, you're not running as many sales as you used to. Harmers used to run a sale, what, Charles, every two or three weeks? Uh, we were doing a sale a week uh, from, like, December until June every year. Yeah, and and, and that's just not done anymore. So you've, if you've got three or four or five months between catalogs, you really don't need as, as many people to in your production staff. So uh, there's a lot less, uh, fewer staff involved, and... Other than, than than having Charles around, I mean, I, I probably had five or ten different people to mentor me throughout my 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 career. There's there's really not that much of it anymore. Uh, so I, I I think the the business will miss that as well. Bill, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope it wasn't too painful. Uh, it, we we really again i it's nice to talk to you out of context i'm so used to talking to you in a uh purely business uh you know setting where i'm asking you what's going on with so-and-so's consignment it's nice to just kick back and uh you know talk um uh in a more relaxed setting for once so this was this was really fun and again we want to thank you for joining us oh, yeah, thank, thank you, you. Uh, one of the one of the most thing one of the things i like doing with you is every once like you throw out somebody's name and I know who they are and what it's they incre- did and what, incre- and what they collect. And I should like, mention like just the other the day, you, you, you said we had a new bidder. And I, I told you exactly what he collected. Hey, uh, the guy Bill, from Texas. 
Bill is um, an encyclopedia of stamp collectors. <laughs> so I can find a lot card from an auction house in like 1982. And I'm like, Bill, who is so-and-so? And you know the proprietor of the auction house. You know whose handwriting is on the lot card. You know who probably bought the item. It's insane. I'll find a book or an article. I'll say, Bill, I just read this article by so-and-so. And you're like, oh, from some random town in Colorado. <laughs> Uh, and you know their wife's name and their dog's name, and, you, and you're you're this encyclopedic resource of the last four decades of philately in America. Uh, I, I just tend to keep a lot of useless knowledge in my head, but uh, <laughs> which makes yeah, you things, dangerous. You have dirt on everyone, I think. Uh, you know, things also were a little different back then. You, you got to, you got to. There were more shows. You got to see a lot more people and, and interact with collectors, dealers, auctioneers a lot more. So you know, you, you, just by guilt by association well again thank you for joining us um again to anybody listening even if you don't know bill personally you know bill's body of work he you heard it <laughs> from his mouth over a quarter of a million auction descriptions uh in the past 40 years um probably none of which have ever been returned is that fair <laughs> to say uh no that's not true <laughs> <laughs> but bill thank you and this was this was a lot of fun all right yeah, thanks thank for having so me uh it, w- it was easier than I thought. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, nice to meet you. You too. Well, that was really that was really interesting. I I loved getting to meet him. I loved hearing his story, his perspective of of coming into the hobby. And, and as you talked in the intro, he was brought into the in the hobby in the same exact way that that you were almost with having a mentor. Yeah. To, to, to teach him everything he knows and the, the stories that, that came from that? And... Luckily, Bill was not as militant with me as uh, Jack Schiff <laughs> was with him, but I, I do think there's a lot of parallels uh, you know, with our introductions to the hobby, yeah. both he and I, about the same age, just finished a science degree that we never used. Um, so <laughs> there are a lot of, a lot of parallels. Yeah. And uh, again, I, I, I'm glad you got to meet him. I'm glad other people get to hear his story because Bill is somebody uh, who I've been very close with for uh, going on five years now um and and I, I i'm glad he was able to share that story with other people and i'm sure that a lot of people whether you have worked for an auction house or wanted to i, I think a lot of people will see different pieces of his story um they might see themselves in it yeah i, I always heard about the cia invert sheet but to be able to talk to a person who actually to be there in the office the, when it walked in right right and talk about um, the the procedure they went through to ensure that it was because they can't just send that off to the the pf the aps no and because, and, and, they, because and, and, it hadn't existed before no in that era i i know there were a lot of things that were escaping from the bureau of engraving and printing that mm-hmm shouldn't have been escaping people would go on a tour of the facility and then come out with their pockets overflowing with uh you know uh, yeah. printers waste and, and, and that sheet in particular was so um used to getting the shifts and all over the place to see the first one that was actually flipped i mean that it... and, and the fact that you have the serendipity of the fact that it was People hear CIA invert, and yeah. it makes it sound like it's a James Bond film or something. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was discovered by CIA employees and yeah. not like Department of the Interior employees, mm-hmm. the Department of the Interior or you know, um, uh, you know, Department of Health doesn't have the same cachet that CIA has. Yeah. So I feel like the marketing of that sheet was really fortunate as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they no, still nobody, go for still go for good money. I think, that, and they're still 
all being turned over at at, uh, at certain points. What's the I actually don't know. What's the largest multiple that's still in existence? Is it the I, we sold a block of four at the New York 2016 show? Okay, I did not fully appreciate because I had been with the company for a month at that point. <laughs> I was I, I didn't know what was going on yeah. yet. They actually, um, I had to carry that home to New York with me in my luggage. Oh, wow. And if I recall, they didn't tell me what it was until I got back (laughs) because they didn't want me freaking out. They just gave me like a sealed envelope and they were like, don't let this out of your sight. Yeah. And that was one of the first times I wondered what I had gotten myself into. Mm -hmm. Well, those are my favorite kind of of stories. I mean, we, we've, I've done that where, you know, you got to stuff a $300,000 stamp album in your, in your carry on luggage and you want to put it above you so that you can see it, not behind you just in case exactly. somebody takes the wrong suitcase out. <laughs> Everyone's wondering why you're like hugging a backpack. Right. <laughs> right. Then you don't want to, you don't want to hug it because then it looks suspicious. Right. And... Because that brings attention to it. And then when they exactly. find out it's a stamp, they're like, Oh, it's just a stamp. But then you're like, no, oh, it's yeah. a stamp. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, can I ask you what it sold for? It's that's public record. That's ridiculous. What did it yeah. sell for? <laughs> yeah, that's that's. Cool. I, I want to say it sold for fifty thousand dollars for the block. Fifty, yeah, fifty five zero. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, yeah. I want it, but it, we we can check that. You know, we can do a like a follow up next week uh, to see how good my memory is. Mm-hmm. I, I can actually grab a photo and have it. Your block was Replace, it a plate no. number block or was it a center line or you don't know. It's fine. You don't need to. I'm just. I'm, <laughs> I've been with the company a month at this point. I had bigger no, things fine. on my mind than whether that's it was fine. a plate block or not. Um, I'm going to look it up right now because I don't want to have to come back and check the tape later. <laughs> okay. It was a 16 page exhibit, including four double pages chronicling the production and use of the $1 Americana series issue. Nice. Um, it includes four CIA inverts, the Discovery Damaged Copy presented as a gift to dealer Jack Schiff, two inverts, and the White Bandit right uh, right. So it was not a block of four. It was just it was just four singles. It was four singles. And that lot sold for fifty thousand. But you were right on the money with the with the money. See? Uh, you can <laughs> expect me to be half right about anything. <laughs> At least half right. At least greater than 50% right. Yeah. Um, and, and one last thing before we wrap this episode up that I wanted to touch on. Um, Bill's uh, concluding thoughts about the future of the hobby, I mm. know, could probably be seen as pessimistic. Um, but I don't take him to be like that. I think mm. Bill is – I think Bill has seen more people come and go in this hobby than anybody else. He's you know had all these people work under him and he's worked alongside so many people that I think when he talks about the fact that there's not, you know, when he talks about Bill Langs and, and Mark Easter and that whole scene of New York guys who were the same age when they started and there's 10 or 20 of them just in New York. Um, I look around me in New York, there's not 10 or 20 other guys, my age joining the hobby. I don't think Bill's being pessimistic or dour when he says that. I think it's the truth. And I don't think it means there's anything wrong with the hobby. I don't think it's a flaw in the hobby or something's fundamentally broken i think it's just the new reality yeah um you know you, you, new york used to be horse-drawn carriages and then electric you know or not electric cars, but uh, gas gasoline automobile Th- things are going to change this new york yeah. has changed and i don't see why the stamp hobby in new york wouldn't be the same there's no dealers on nassau street anymore there haven't been since what the 80s or 90s yeah. so i think bill's point is is very well taken again i don't look at it as pessimistic it doesn't make me want to go out and find a new job um, by any means, no. I I, I mean, think that I, I think that it's something we have to realize that as much 
positivity as there is in the hobby, as much forward progress and momentum as there is in the hobby, um, it's going to be unrecognizable in a matter of decades, if not years. Right. To the people who, what it was. who had already been in it for years. And, and the thing is, we're, we're right here, like you had mentioned, we're, we're right here. It's, it is, it's changing. Uh, at, at any point, I could have been in, in New York as well as, as well as Alex or, or any of the other, yeah. uh, you know, young philatelists. We're just exactly. in different areas. And the fact that, that we've got the internet and it's allowing us to connect is what is allowing the the hobby to remain as powerful as it once was with the number of collectors and the prices and, and everything like that. It's not, it, it used to be such more of a close contact. Exactly. And now that it's, the contact is, has lengthened, but that doesn't mean that the bond isn't just as strong. Exactly. Again, when when Bill talks about the future of the hobby, I don't see there being a value judgment in any of that. It's right. going to change. It's going to be different. It's it's not going to be better or worse. It it, it it's going to be um, mm-hmm. getting very philosophical here. Right. Well, the but pandemic I, I, is it, it, it's teaching us how to lean into what the tools we have and how to use them properly to make sure we promote the hobby hobby in the best possible way and make sure that we do the correct things to lead it on the path that that it that it needs to be on to remain as prevalent in everybody's lives as as it always has been and the longevity of of the collectors in the hobby isn't the people aren't losing interest in the hobby people who have been here the whole time haven't lost interest and new people coming in aren't going to lose interest if anything embracing the the social media or embracing the internet, the accessibility of, of digital philately is going to strengthen the resolve within collectors to remain in the hobby and become uh, better collectors. I don't know what you need me for. That, that sums it up perfectly. <laughs> no, I mean, well, here like, mean, like garnish. Well, uh, 50 years ago, the APRL was in all digital. You know, I couldn't, I had to go to, I had to go to the APS to go rent a book. I don't need to do that now. Uh, I think the proper term is check out a book. I think you have been using uh, Netflix for too long. Uh, You just said rent a book. Yeah, Um, fair. So uh, there's proof that the digital has already uh, supplanted. It's affecting us, uh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But no, this was a fun episode. Um, I really enjoyed this one. People who are listening can find us on YouTube, yep. Apple Podcasts, yep. Spotify Podcasts, Google yep. Podcasts, Podbean. Everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, if you have an RSS feed, we're there. Yep. I still don't know what an RSS feed is, but no, I know I'm it's not important. Look, I refuse podcast. to look it up. No, no. It's, it's just what, what's make, it's what makes our podcast show up. Um, <laughs> we have a website, yep. com. We have an email, philatelypodcast.com at gmail.com mm-hmm. and you sent out you sent out an email from flatly podcast at gmail.com setting up one of our interviews yeah and i got confused i thought somebody else had a flatly <laughs> podcast as well and i'm like what are they writing me for and then i realized it was you so <laughs> who the hell are these guys to ha- exactly i'm like who, who's this flatly podcast yeah. at gmail.com and then i realized it was us yeah no well people uh, are emailing it and and what i think is so great is they're emailing it for the exact reason that we talked about earlier is that they don't they don't have mentors so they're to asking. Check us. Well, <laughs> no, they're they're asking uh, what books they should get to be beginners. 
to, to, to aid them in their, in, in their hobby. And I'm getting to redirect them back to the, to the APS and, and, and everything like that. And they're looking for, people are looking for help. And 50 years ago, there wasn't that. They wouldn't, have been, they wouldn't have been able to email us. No, they wouldn't. I don't want to say they wouldn't have been able to survive without us, but people are saying that. I'm sure certainly <laughs> they not would have that. had to listen to our podcast on like a reel to reel tape. Yeah. <laughs> they, 50 years ago, they would have maybe even like a transcription yeah. disc of one of the big 16 inches that you can't even put on a normal turntable. Right. I'm dating myself right now because I actually have some of those. Um, uh, yeah. But it, I, my computer battery is conspicuously low. So I don't want this episode to get cut off midway through. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to bid you adieu, Michael. Yep. Um, my girlfriend goes to France for a year and all of a sudden I start speaking fluent French. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next time, this has been fantastic. This has been great. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you real soon, Michael. Yep. See you then.